Hello, friends, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. We're in the second week of a series that we've called Interview with God. And as I mentioned last week, this is one of the most exciting and intriguing and ambitious series we've ever tackled as a church, and I'm having a blast with it. Uh, What we're doing for eight weeks this fall is we're imagining what it would be like to sit down with God and interview him and to ask the hard questions that we've always wanted to ask, even the awkward ones. And and so if you've been with us so far, you know it's already been a great ride and we're just getting started. And so uh, what we get to do today is ask another one of those questions that I think a lot of us have wanted to ask or have asked ourselves from time to time, especially if you've ever spent significant time with someone who practices a different sort of faith. Maybe they were a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Sikh, and, and you sort of got to know them maybe casually, but, but eventually you spent some significant time with one another, and you talked about life and, and kids, and eventually the conversation turned to sort of the, the religion that they grew up in or the religion that they practice. And as they shared sort of their religious traditions, and as you held them up and kind of looked at your religious traditions, you you may have had a thought a lot of people have had over the years. And basically you're thinking, you know, there are certainly cultural distinctives. I mean, there's differences, but, but at the core, aren't all these religions delivering the same basic message? I remember the first time someone asked me that question. Uh, It was at a formative time in my faith and in my life. It it was October, the year was 1993. I was walking to an organic chemistry lecture uh, with my friend Mo. And and the campus of the University of Michigan was in full fall glory, right? This is uh, what they call the brochure compliant months uh, at Michigan colleges. It's when there are photographers all over the campuses because they're shooting for their websites. Well, not back then because Al Gore hadn't invented the internet yet, but you know what I'm saying? The brochures, right? Because man, when some kid in Florida, you know, gets a thing about the University of Michigan or Michigan State or Wayne State, they open it up and they see these beautiful trees full of fall color. They think, man, that must be like living in heaven on earth. That's why we don't take pictures in February because we mislead children in the South. It's wonderful. But anyway, this day in particular, uh, the campus was in its glory. I was walking to organic chemistry. I remember this day uh, vividly because uh, out of a dorm window, a student had positioned a speaker and was blaring the song, The Freshman by the Verve Pipe. It was so 90s, it just burned your ears. It was amazing. But anyway, um, I had recently learned um, after studying for an organic chemistry test that Mo had grown up in a Muslim home. And in fact, his full name was Mo Hamid, right. And he also said to me, you know, that's actually the most popular name in the world. And and in preparing today, I checked, uh, right now there's somewhere around 125 million people named Mohammed in the world, which is amazing. And what it means practically is that when they go up uh, to a gift store to one of those walls that has everybody's name on a mug or a keychain, Mohammed is always hooked up. I am never hooked up. I'm not bitter, but I'm just saying. Um, But I had really limited experience with Muslims. And so I had asked Mo, like, how do you order your life around your faith? How does your faith, you know, kind of impact the way that you live your life? And so he told me the story of the Muhammad who founded Islam, uh, his faith, and he talked to me about the five pillars of Islam, these five different ways that Muslims sort of order their life in order to align their hearts with God. And, And as he sort of explained it to me, I noticed that, you know, there are some similarities, right? I mean, they're taught to love and serve and give and forgive And pray, among other things, but this is sort of my summary, right? Love, serve, give, forgive, and pray. He said, we're we're taught to be generous to people in need. Uh, We were supposed to take care of other people. That's one of the distinctives 
of our faith. And I had to admit, you know, during this conversation, there really are a lot of similarities. And then uh, Muhammad asked 19-year-old me, right, who grew up in, you know, conservative Christian home, West Michigan, had only ever met people who were Christians. Um, he, he said to me um, the same question I think a lot of us would ask God if we got the op- if, uh, opportunity. It goes like this. Aren't all religions fundamentally the same? And you got to understand his tone. He was just curious of my perspective. There was no debate here. Uh, You know, we weren't arguing. We were just literally having a conversation of understanding. But he says, you know, don't you think all religions are fundamentally the same thing? Aren't they all kind of going in the same direction? And I actually had an answer to this question uh, because I grew up in the 80s in West Michigan. And I was crystal clear on few things as a 19-year-old, but I was crystal clear on the fact that what Jesus offers is very different than every other religious tradition. And, and so after a significant pause, I looked at him and I said, you know, I don't, I don't think so. And when he asked me why I thought that, I shared something that I remembered that Jesus had said to his followers one day, 2,000 years ago. And it's something that when you first read it, it really, well, it can seem offensive to people from other faith traditions. But hang with me, because I think what you'll see today is what happens in Jesus is actually the greatest news the world has ever received. Because when Jesus came, he offered something truly unique in the world, something that no other religious tradition had ever offered or has offered since, or even can offer. And so Jesus hints at this exclusive sort of thing he's about during a conversation one day with his first followers. So just imagine me, 12 teenage guys, Jesus calls them, says, follow me, and they watch him teach, and they watch him heal, and they start to wonder because he's unlike any other teacher, and really he's unlike any other prophet. He seems to have the power of God in his hands. And so eventually they start asking him about some of these distinctives and distinctions. And Jesus in the middle of a conversation drops this on him, which I think is awesome. And John was there, recorded it for us. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And you're like, okay, that's nice. I don't know what you mean. But then he says this, no one comes to the father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to peace with God except through me. I am the way to peace with God. I am the way to a restored relationship with God. So Jesus really is saying what you think he's saying there. And and if it's true, then there must be something really unique or really different about Jesus. And there is. Jesus was unlike any other prophet And his message was unlike any other message. And here's why. This is our big idea for today. At the highest level, every other religion teaches you a path to rescue yourself. You think about the different traditions and they're saying, okay, this is how you move away from sin and towards, uh, it's always like, it's it's like we're going to help you move away from sin. And that's a good thing, but it's different than what Jesus did. Instead of offering you a path to rescue yourself, Jesus offers to rescue you. And it's hard to overstate the difference. And with the rest of our time, I want to show you what I mean. So to start to unpack what makes Jesus unique, I want to give you a little bit of a history lesson. I want to explore with you how most sociologists believe ancient religion began on planet earth. And so for the next three minutes, we're going to enter sort of a nerd zone, which I love, and some of you don't, and that's okay, right? But it's only three minutes. So if you don't like the History Channel, it'll only be three minutes, I promise. So uh, historically speaking, sociologists tell us that religion likely began when ancient peoples all over the world, kind of independent from one another, observed two things about the world. And both of these things, interestingly enough, show up in a New Testament letter 
written to Christians living in the city of Rome, which was at the time the capital of the world. So here are the two things that sociologists believe all over the ancient world, independent from one another, people notice. The first one, there is a creator. Uh, they didn't always call it God. Sometimes they thought there were a bunch of gods. Sometimes they thought it was the source or the force. Star Wars fans, right? Or the energy or the, what, what, you know, it, but there was, there's something there. We're not here by accident. You just open your eyes and look at, look at the world and people all over the ancient world came to this realization. There, there's a designer behind the design. There's a creator behind the creation. Someone created this on purpose. And, and so here's how Paul writes to these early Christians uh, in Romans chapter one. We read this in week one of the series. He says, for since the creation of the world, like the beginning, like page one, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Open your eyes. God's fingerprints are everywhere. Being understood from what has been made. It's almost like Paul says, if you're just honest about the world in which you find yourself, the fact that we're not here by accident is evident. In fact, it takes more faith to believe we're here by accident than to believe in a designer. Uh, so that was the first thing that ancient people noticed all over the world, independently of one another. The second thing goes like this. Uh, maybe you've noticed this, uh, not with yourself, of course, but with your children. Uh, people regularly misbehave on purpose, right? And being a little playful there, the Bible calls this sort of thing sin, uh, but we misbehave, like I, I misbehave, I made a mistake, but, but we do it, we do it on purpose. And there's a difference between just making a mistake and doing something wrong on purpose, right? We make a mistake often because we have bad information or not enough information. It's like I was, you know, long ago before GPS, I was on a way to a friend's cottage. I turned left instead of turning right, uh, even though my wife was right and I was wrong. That always happens. But anyway, right? And I end up in a, a, a city away from where we're supposed to be. And, and, and I look at her and I said, you know, I, I made a mistake. And at that point she went, yes, you had bad information. It was living in your head, but you had bad information. Right. But I didn't do it on purpose. See, so the, a bunch of the stuff that we do, missing anniversaries or missing a, a lunch date that you made, I mean, that's a mistake. You didn't have the right information or you forgot the information. But we misbehave on purpose often. And, and what's interesting is we're in good company. This is something people have been doing since there have been people. Later in that same letter to Christians living in Rome, Paul, the author, the pastor, writes most of the New Testament letters. He says this, and, and for some of you, this will be like your new life verse, favorite verse in the Bible. Here you go. He says, uh, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, right? For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing, Right? And all of a sudden you're like, you know, Jesus, way, truth, life, don't understand that. This I got, right? I'm, I've got, I could do a PhD in this. I'm really great at that. I know there's a way I should live. And for some reason, I talk myself out of living that way. And I live ways ultimately that are not good for me. We've all felt this way before. Maybe in a moment of just reflection. Maybe in a moment of exposure, you were caught doing something. And you think, how in the world did I ever get here? This is true of all people. We often don't do what we should and know it. We sin. That's what the Bible would call it. And we have a sense that if someone is watching and someone is keeping score, we could be in a lot of trouble. And so these were the two observations in the ancient world that led to the rise of religion. Ancient people assumed that pain in this life was punishment for wrongdoing. They did something they weren't supposed to do. They didn't do something they were supposed to do. They hurt someone, they hurt something, they offended 
the gods or the source or the force. And in response, this God sent pain. So ancient religion all over the ancient world, unconnected, independent from one another, develops as a way to try to make things right with the divine. And it so makes sense that it did if you stop to think about it. Just imagine this with me. Uh, somewhere in the ancient world, you're a part of a small community, and your community has crossed the line from nomadic to agrarian. You're planting crops, and you're able to store up for the winter, so you can actually stay in one place. And imagine with me that you, you're beside a river, uh, and the river sort of provides the water, which is the lifeblood for the community, and, and life is good. And then eventually, you know, the, the rain stops, and then the river dries up. And you, the ground begins to crack. Like it starts to look like Breaking Bad. And, um, and you're sitting around the fire at night with your friends and you start to say, man, I don't know what to do. I mean, it's always, the river always flows. The rains always come. But this spring, they're not coming. And, and everything's dry. And, and we're not going to be able to, the crops aren't going to grow. And then we're not going to be able to make it through the winter. What are we going to do? And your friend says, well, have you ever considered that maybe someone up there is offended by something we've done down here and maybe is withholding the reins. And, and you begin to think, and, and it's almost like, well, I mean, I certainly have done some things wrong on purpose, so I guess I could imagine that. And then your friend, and your friend's a little superstitious and weird, but you're entertaining the thought, right? He says, well, what if, what if there were somebody up there, and what if there were a way for you to signal to the person up there that you're sorry for this thing that you did? And then maybe they would send the reins. And you're like, maybe, right? But he says, you know, we're going to have to move or we're going to die if we don't try something. So we might as well try something. And so your friend who's superstitious says, you know what, let's stack a few rocks on, one, on each other. And you make an altar. And this is a fancy altar that came later in history, but you just make an altar. And you say to your friend, nice rock stack, what do you want to do with it? And he says, well, if you did something wrong that offended whoever's up there, then you're going to need to say you're sorry. And so you're going to need to sacrifice something, a value to demonstrate that you're sorry. And you say, well, what would I sacrifice? And they would say, well, you, you'd probably sacrifice in the ancient world an animal. And so you go get your favorite calf, Lucky, <laughs> and you bring him over by the altar. And you, your friend says, okay, but we can't eat any of this because then that's a benefit to us. So we're just going to put the whole, kill the calf, calf, put it on the altar. The whole thing gets consumed. The smoke rises. If there's someone up there, then maybe they will see how sorry we are and the rain's will come. And you can just imagine laying in your tent at night, rehearsing all the things that you might have done to offend whoever's in, in control up there, if your superstitious friend is right. But you decide, you know what, the, the drought gets bad enough, you do it. Just, we're going to do it one day. And, and by the way, um, all around the ancient world where there were these altars with animal sacrifices on them, if you said to me, you know, what did it smell like approaching an ancient temple? I would tell you barbecue. I'm just saying, because you're grilling meat all the time. So that was just for free and not important to the story. So the idea is that, you know, the smoke rises and then they know. So, so, okay, imagine this happens and then the next day you're sitting around the campfire or the week later and your superstitious friend uh, is sitting there with you and, you know, you kind of look at the deal and one of two things could have happened. It's possible it started to rain. And if it started to rain, you know what just happened? A religion was born. That's how it happens, right? The other thing, though, that's possible is that it doesn't rain. And you're, you have a suspicious friend and you have a cynical friend. Your cynical friend says it didn't rain because he's just superstitious and he's being ridiculous and there's nobody up there. But your superstitious friend says, oh, but there's another option. So what's the other option? That you didn't sacrifice enough. How bad were you? 
right? And how much good do you have to do to overcome the bad that you've done? To which the friend would say, I, I don't know. No one told us. He's like, yeah, that's right. You better keep trying. And so all over the ancient world, the sacrificial system became very dark very quickly because no one ever knew how much was enough. And so you'd bring more and more and more and more and more. And if the drought got bad enough, you found people all over the ancient world sacrificing their children. That's how it happened. That's how it happened. To try to say that they're sorry for whatever they had done wrong. Ancient people would do whatever they could to deal with the sin in their lives. But again, even with the sacrifice of what is most valuable to you, insecurity remained. You never knew when you had done enough. Consequently, ancient religion was ruled by insecurity, fear, and anxiety. Ancient, and some of you are like, yeah, modern religion, sometimes also fueled by insecurity, fear, and anxiety. That was my experience growing up. Hang with me. It gets better, right? Ancient religion is fueled by insecurity. I don't know where I stand with God. And so if you fast forward the tape and you bring us up to today, even though in our world we've moved past animal sacrifice in most of the world, I would argue that most religion today operates with similar insecurity. I have friends uh, from different faiths, and when pain enters their life, they wonder if they're being punished by God. And I have friends who, from other faiths whose good deeds are driven out of a fear of not being good enough on the day that they're called into account for the way they've lived their lives. So they love and serve and give and forgive and help people, all good things, but they do so out of insecurity. They're afraid of what might happen if they don't. For some of them, they would say, you know, I want to be good enough to unlock the blessings in this life, and I want to be good enough to qualify for the upgrade in the life to come. And so come back with me to the University of Michigan, 1993. I'm walking with my friend Mo, and he confirmed on our walk that he really didn't know where he stood with God. And then he said, how can anyone know, right? We just do the best we can and trust that God will be just. And he says, you know, I have good days and I have bad days. And when I stand before God at the end of my life, I hope that I've done enough good. He says that, you know, he spent his life trying to earn something. And this is where this gets sinister. He's trying to earn something without really knowing the price. And again, I remember that he said, isn't that, isn't that true for all of us? Aren't all religions fundamentally the same? And because this is right at the core of the, of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, I look back at him and said, I don't think so. Jesus offers something radically different than every other religious system. And that's why he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is unique because instead of showing us how to rescue ourselves from sin, which is what religion always does, Jesus offers to be our rescuer. And 2,000 years ago, when Jesus came among us, he did two powerful things. He confirmed that the problem of sin is real. He affirmed that the damage that sin inflicts on our relationship with God is incalculable, so much so that humans are incapable of self-rescue. But he also affirmed that because humanity needed a rescuer and God so loved the world that he sent his son. And that's right at the heart of the Christian message. So much so it shouldn't surprise us that the New Testament writers, when you read those accounts written by Paul and others to early, Christian, uh, early Christians all over the Mediterranean Rim, it's filled with celebrating what was accomplished on the cross of Jesus. I want to take you to this one passage and show you sort of how this plays out. It's a letter written to Christians living in Greece. And as Paul opens this passage, he begins by telling them something amazing about Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, For God was pleased... 
to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. For God was pleased. So Jesus was more than a man. He was somehow the fullness of God in human form, unlike anyone before or anyone since. And so he continues, he says, and through Jesus to reconcile or to restore, to right relationship, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So it's like God wants to communicate something to a culture that understands blood sacrifice, and so he sends Jesus to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin. He says, the blood of Jesus has the power to bring you to peace with God. And in fact, on the cross, God was in the business of reconciling to himself all things. And so as Paul continues past this first idea, he gets really personal. So, so far he's talked about sort of the universal Jesus. And he says, okay, let me talk about how this intersects with your life, um, person of, of Colossae. He says this, once you were alienated from God, this, this brokenness that you feel in your bones and people have felt for a long time, yeah, it's real. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds, and he said, well, how did that happen? Because of your evil behavior. Because you make mistakes on purpose. <laughs> Because you sin, that causes separation from God. But fortunately, this is not where the story ends. Check out where he goes next. He says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. He has restored you through right relationship. Not because of your efforts, but because of what Jesus accomplished on your behalf. And, and, the, and this reconciliation has everything to do with Jesus' death on the cross. But he's not even done yet. Check this out, this next part. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you. Here's the implication. Because you've been reconciled, now to present you holy in his sight. Holy means clean. Holy means washed. Holy means free from sin. And, and the implication here, free from accusation. A lot of people imagine this day where you stand before God and it's almost like a courtroom with oak paneling. I don't know why I always imagine it with oak paneling, right? But he's saying on that day, if there's a prosecuting attorney, they got nothing on you because of Jesus, not because of you. Because you have been reconciled to God and you now stand free from accusation. It's like you're holy. Holy means God doesn't count your sins against you. And, and so on that walk, I, I, said, I said to Mo that because of Jesus, Christianity really is unique. Because in every other religious tradition, you never know for sure when you've done enough. That's the insecurity that drives so much religious behavior. But, but in Jesus, God made a way for people to know where they stand. He didn't come to show us a way to rescue ourselves from sin. He came to be our rescuer. And that's why the good news about getting right with God has nothing to do with our efforts. It has everything to do with what has been done for us. Paul writes that through the death of Jesus, God has reconciled to himself all things. When Jesus' blood spilled on the cross, he closed the rift created by sin. On the cross, he invited the world into a restored relationship with the creator. In fact, the first people that heard this all over the Mediterranean Rim, they said, that's good news. We, we call it gospel. That's what it means. This is good news. Because everywhere people heard it, they said, this is good news. We can leave behind the fear and the anxiety and the insecurity, and we can step into certainty. That would change everything. But here's the thing. It's even better than that. Because God loves us, he would never force himself on anyone. 
In fact, God would never force anyone to be with him forever because that wouldn't be love. So on the cross, what you have is an invitation to all people in all times. God says, will you have me? Will you step into a restored relationship with me? I've made a way. I've done everything and I've invited you. And now because I love you, I want you to have the opportunity to respond. Will you have me? It's almost like the creator of the universe gets on one knee to propose to all of us. and say, I, I want to rescue you, will you take my hand? On the walk in Ann Arbor, I told Mo that the, the similarities between our practices of faith are legitimate. They just flow out of a very different place. Good works for a Christian should never flow out of insecurity or fear. Asterisk, I know a bunch of us grew up in church and we would say, oh, that's interesting because <laughs> that was not my experience growing up. But I'm telling you, theologically speaking, good works for a Christian should never flow from a sense of insecurity or fear. Good works for a Christian should flow from a profound sense of thankfulness. We love and serve and sacrifice and give because of what has been done for us. And when you understand what God did for you, it's almost unthinkable to respond in any other way. When you say yes to Jesus, it's like good works begin to flow, not to earn anything, but because of what has been earned for us, not from insecurity, but from thankfulness. Friends, this is the gospel. This is what makes Jesus so unique. This is the truth that really has the power to change everything for you and for me. And so uh, if we got to sit down, sit down with God for a conversation and we said, yeah, we've noticed, you know, a bunch of different religious traditions. They all kind of, you know, the same sort of practices flow and, and that those, you know, not bad, but we're like, aren't they all the same? I think this I think this is how God might respond. And again, my asterisk is I have no red phone. I know it's always fun to put words in God's mouth. It doesn't feel like a good idea, but I'm trying. And uh, so this is kind of my understanding of how he might answer the question. Feel free to disagree. Here's what he says. Uh, I think you'd say something like this. You know, aren't, aren't all religions the same? Not at all. In fact, Jesus came to rescue you from religion. Religious frameworks are designed by well-intentioned people to help individuals free themselves from the consequences of sin. He says, but... As he continues, those frameworks, though helpful, I mean, they're helpful, are ultimately inadequate. Humans are incapable of freeing themselves from sin. They need to be rescued. And that is precisely why Jesus came. As we land today, um, I want to take a moment and just be in this emotional space. And so the band's going to come and uh, Danielle's going to sing a song about rescue. Uh, sort of written, again, from the perspective of God, talking about the love that he has for every single person, his heart for us, his, his full awareness of the need that we have to be rescued. And so in, in this space, if you're someone who has said yes to Jesus, if you've shifted your trust from your ability to earn something to what Jesus has done for you, then just take a moment and be reminded. Just say thank you. Thank you for doing something for me that I could never do for myself. And maybe you're here and you grew up in a really toxic religious environment and it was all fear and anxiety for you and, and this is a new thought. And if that's you, I would just ask you to, to just wonder for a minute, what would it be like if I really came to believe that God wanted to rescue me and he's done everything necessary other than me accepting that gift? 
And the only reason I even need to accept is because of how much he loves me. And just be with that thought a moment and see if that doesn't stir something deep within you. So let's enjoy this song together.